Well, I missed you guys, and it makes me so happy to once again be with you this morning. I want us, as we begin, I just want us to imagine as much as we can that we are in a church assembly service, much like the one that we are in right now. Only this worship assembly is in the first century. It's in a church in a place called Ephesus. And there's a woman who makes an announcement of sorts just before it begins. And she says, and she has it in her hand, she says that, that we have received a letter from Paul, the great apostle. And I mean, there was already this electric atmosphere that was very excited and eager to be together as God's church before. But now this entire atmosphere is just, it's nuclear right now with excitement. I mean, imagine how this letter commanded their undivided attention as they heard words like this for the very first time. Words like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To all the saints of God who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks, making mention of you in all of my prayers to God. And yet imagine how good that this church felt as they heard the way that this letter culminates. Paul punctuates his letter to the church at Ephesus with these words, he says, peace be to all of the brethren, in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Now I can say that anytime that my wife has ever looked at me and said out loud, David, I respect you. That makes any man want to just pound on their chest like an orangutan. To this day, any time that my dad says, David, I am proud of you, I'm proud of the man that you are becoming, that, that brings tears to my eyes. Amen. And when God looks at his church and virtually says, church, I am so proud of you, imagine how good that felt for that church. Because Paul uses a very strong word here. He uses the word incorruptible. What this word literally means is he's saying that you have a love that is so fervent, it is indestructible. It is something that is, it is immortal. It is something that is incapable of deterioration. That's how much they love God. It's how much they love each other, and it's how much they love the loss. It's a love that you cannot destroy this thing, no matter how hard you try. Well, we know that Ephesus is just like maybe a couple of other churches. They're just like Corinth and Thessalonica in that they, at Ephesus, also received two letters. Only when they received letter number two, it's not from the Apostle Paul this time. This time they receive a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, again, just imagine that, that we are in that assembly the morning that they received this letter. 
Somebody says out loud, we have received a letter, and it's from Jesus Christ himself. Mm. Let me remind us that this is 60 years after Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead, and ascended to the Father's right hand. Jesus has just written us a letter. I mean, do you think that whoever read that letter had that church's undivided attention? So I would like to begin this morning in the book. I would like to go to 2 Ephesians this morning. Let's go to the book of 2 Ephesians. Or as we know it, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This, this letter that Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, it, it begins as impressively as Ephesians had ended. And again, let's just imagine that we are in, in that specific assembly as these words are read aloud. Revelation chapter 2, beginning of verse 2. There Jesus says that I know your deeds, and I know your toil, and I know that you have a perseverance, and I know that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And we read this and we think, I mean, what more could you want in a church? We, we hear these words and we think, this is the kind of church that we want to be a part of, right? This has to be the perfect church. Except it's not. This is, this is absolutely the kind of church that we do not want to be like, brothers and sisters. This is not the perfect church. Ephesus is not the perfect congregation. And by the way, neither is the church here at Westchester. There is no perfect church. And yet, I, I, I marvel at the church of Ephesus, though. And I marvel at it because what we learn here in this letter is that we could be doing all the right things. We could have the right wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures. We could have the right work ethic to where we are exhausting ourselves working for King Jesus. We could have the right perseverance. We can be those kind of Christians who resist temptation in our culture. We can do all of those things and still not please God. And that's because Ephesus has all of this nice stuff but they have a missing ingredient in this church. And that missing ingredient at Ephesus just happens to be the most important ingredient in this entire thing that we call Christianity. About a month, a, about a month ago in this missing ingredient series, we had seen, we had spoken about the missing ingredient called koinonia, Christian fellowship. But the missing ingredient here at Ephesus is Agape. Because Jesus goes on and he says in verse 4, But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. 
or else I am coming to you, and I'm, I will remove your lampstand for, out of its place, unless you repent. What we know about this word agape is that it is the most aggressive, most ferocious and fervent kind of love and charity that there is, both for God as well as for other people. When a person has agape love in their souls, they are a person who has this very sacrificial adoration coursing through one's very bones, both for their God as well as for their fellow man. And as I think about Ephesus here in the book of Revelation, can we almost hear the words of the Apostle Paul resounding and, and echoing forth to us? That if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I do not have love, I become nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions and I feed the poor with the proceeds and I give my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me absolutely nothing. And in our own modern day language of the church, as a minister of this church, I could, I could be able to quote every single verse in the Word of God frontwards and backwards, in Greek and in Hebrew. When we sing and when we praise God, we could sing every single note to flawless perfection. We could have the voices of professional opera singers. We could baptize every single person in this city and in this state while we're at it. We could end homelessness in this church. We could find the cure to cancer. We could walk on water and turn it into wine. But if we don't have love to accompany all of those acts, we're just making a bunch of noise in here. We're just wasting our own time, God's time and everybody else's time. And it profits us absolutely nothing, the Apostle Paul says. And so how can we be a church like Ephesus once was? How can we be the church with incorruptible love? And how can we remain the church that has an incorruptible love? For just a few moments this morning, I would like to explore this in three ways with us. I would like to learn from the enigma in Ephesus. I want us to remember the irony of heaven. And then lastly, I want to emphasize being Gentile Christians with Hebrew spirits. And yet again, we just look at the church at Ephesus, though. This is the exact same church, as we read in Revelation chapter 2, this is the exact same congregation that had the incorruptible love that had a love that, that an inspired gospel writer, that the Holy Spirit looked at and said, that is immortal, that is incapable of deterioration. But now the indestructible love has been destroyed. Now the incorruptible love, is, it, has, it has undergone rust and decay. 
and we just marvel at this and it's such an enigma. We think, how could this happen? Why did this happen? Well, we know that when Paul writes Ephesians, he's likely imprisoned in Rome, which, which would mean that he wrote Ephesians about 65 AD, give or take. When, when Revelation is written, though, this is give or take 95 AD. So this is 30 years later on in history. And in the story of the Godfather, that novel begins with a man coming into the office of Don Vito Corleone. His name is Amerigo. And his daughter has been viciously harmed and attacked, and he, he pleads on hands and knees, please, Don Corleone, avenge my daughter. And later on, after he has avenged his daughter, it, it says in the story much later on, words that are very deep. It says that he was so grateful that he would have done anything for the dog. And then, here is this, this, this money statement. But time erodes gratitude more quickly than it does our beauty. Now, I'm not saying that, that God expects or is desiring us to go out and hire a contract assassin to avenge our enemies at our behest. I'm not saying that. But I read that and I think that we're saved and we come into the church. And it's like we would do anything for our God. But time erodes gratitude for His grace more quickly than it decays our outward beauty. This is the last church that we would expect this from at Ephesus because more than likely this is a church that the Apostle Paul had planted himself. But it's interesting because Paul seems to always be on the move. He doesn't like staying in one place at a time. But did you know that Paul spends three years of his life at Ephesus? And so Ephesus gets three years of Paul's influence, more than anybody else. And yet also, he has mentored these elders at Ephesus himself. And so these elders are walking, talking, really extensions of the Apostle Paul. But we also know that, at least according to history, John the Apostle also comes and stays many years with this specific church. And so they have not one, but actually two of, of Jesus' apostles there in their midst. And as we've seen, they have also received not one, but actually two inspired letters. One that came from Paul, the other that came from the, the resurrected Christ himself. I mean, this is a church that it, that it could be argued that this church has had more advantages and blessings and privileges than any other church that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And yet, one thing that I have discovered, though, is that it is absolutely, it is inevitable that a church is going to change in time. And a church will change for better or they will change for worse. Now in 1988, this very well may have been an auditorium that was filled with a church just as wonderful and Christ-like as it is here this morning. I don't know that. I wasn't here. I was in preschool, right? 
And yet there may have been 200 or 300 people here in 1988. But 30 years later, if we have love in this church in ways that they did not then, we have not shrunk as a church. But rather, we have grown exponentially as a church. Amen. If the favorite verse of any given church 30 years ago was, do all things in decency and in order, and it's all that they had cared about. But 30 years later, the theme verse of that church is, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't care how many less people there are in that church. That church has not subtracted. That church has multiplied. And yet as far as Ephesus goes, this, this beautiful model church that is so exemplary, the incorruptible love that they once possessed 30 years ago, it's no more, you guys. They no longer have a 65 A.D. love. Now they've got this 95 A.D. love thing going on. And Jesus looks at this 95 A.D. love and he said, I don't want that. I don't want that because that is not agape love. I want you guys to go back and, and start loving me again with a 65 A.D. love. And if you remain in this 95 A.D. love, I'm shutting you guys down. I'm shutting all of this down unless you go back to 65 AD and love me like you did when you fell in love with me and my gospel for the very first time. I love how Jesus warns us, though, because it's never you know, gloom and doom. It's always, here's what you've done, but here is how you can come back. And the most important word that, that, that he offers this church is the word remember. I think the way that we are going to grasp and arrive at the point where we love God as we did at the first is we need to remember the irony of heaven. Because what is heaven? Heaven is this flawless city. It is this flawlessly perfect realm with a flawlessly perfect God who, who reigns on a flawlessly immaculate throne. For a God so perfect who dwells in a city that immaculate, we would expect that there would be no regard for such spectacular imperfectionism as what we are known for. I would expect a God who is perfect to, to look upon us as we look at a cockroach. Because let's face it, we are the experts of sin. And yet that's not our God at all, is it? The irony of God is, instead of that, this is how God loves us. Jesus is standing there one day, and the rich young ruler approaches him. And as Jesus is standing there, and he sees this, this rich young man approaching him, Jesus knows that he's 90 seconds away from walking away from Jesus grieving. Jesus knows that this guy loves his stuff more than he loves Jesus. But in one of the gospel accounts, it says that as all of this is about to go down, that Jesus is looking at this man and that he felt a love in his heart for him. 
I mean, just think about the person who you love more than anybody else in your life. It might be your grandmother. It might be your spouse. It might be your very closest friend. This is how Jesus is looking at a guy who's about to say, I don't choose you yet. This is how he loves us. Jesus is standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus one day. And I know that it says that Jesus wept, but in the original connotation of the language, Jesus is doing a lot more than that. Jesus is wailing at the top of his lungs. Jesus is undergoing this, this very disturbing brand of lamentation to where it just makes you kind of tremble. It's so uncomfortable. And yet, there were people in the midst of that crowd as Jesus is wailing uncomfortably loud. And over the noise, they say, see how he loves him. Look at how much Jesus loves his friend. This is how he loves us. And then I don't know if it was a year after that, maybe a couple of years after that, Jesus now is hanging on a Roman cross. His face has spittle. His eyes, I imagine, are, are just about sealed shut because of how many times he's been beaten. He has been bludgeoned and skinned like an animal out in the wild. And now the religious leaders of that community, they are cursing him out. They are mocking him in a vulgar way. While all of this is going on, you know what Jesus is doing? For six consecutive hours, as Jesus rides in pain, he musters up what little strength he had, and he keeps on praying continuously, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. I just over, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And every week that we eat this bread and drink this cup, we stand at the cross and we marvel, see how much he loves us. When I was little many years ago, maybe three or four years old, I would go to my grandmother's house every single day. Now, I've got a grandmother who's from the deep south in Tennessee. She, was one of, or she is one of those grandmothers who likes to gently hum hymns as she works in the kitchen. And I remember distinctly how my grandmother sang this song many years ago. It goes like this. It was his love for me that nailed him to the tree to suffer agony for all my sin. For my own guilt and blame, the great Redeemer came Willing to bear the shame for all my sin. Oh, what a Savior is mine. In Him God's mercies combine. His love will not decline. And He loves me. There on that faithful day, my Lord they led away, none 
else the price could pay for all my sin. Was ever crime so wrong? Was ever love so strong? Was ever suffering long for all my sin? Oh, what a Savior is mine! In Him God's mercies combine. His love will not decline, and He loves me. See, the irony of heaven is that God's love for us does not deteriorate. It does not erode, perish, spoil, or fade away. But rather, even though we are so undeserving, God's love for us intensifies. It deepens. He pours gasoline on the fire that he already has that, that just burns in love for us. And so what he wants in Ephesus, and what he wants here at Westchester, because we're just like the church at Ephesus in the sense that we're all a bunch of Gentiles. What Jesus wants are Gentile Christians who agape him with the Hebrew spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, long ago, Israel is is all assembled in. Moses stands before them. And in the law, he says this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, words that we all know, but words that it seems like every time we hear it, it's like, ah, oh, I'm not living that way. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. God is calling his people by name. And there's just something, if, if what we're saying is important, we like to, to, to throw their name in for, for you know, power. Now, I know that it's one thing when my wife merely says my name, but when I hear my name, or my, my wife say my first, my second, and my last name, brothers and sisters, I know that girl means business. <laughs> And I know I better listen to that girl. God wants us to love him. But maybe it would do us well to, to not read, O Israel, but to hear, O Westchester, O Jim, O David, O Claude. You shall love the Lord your God. And not just love me, not just know who I am, but, but I want you to love me with, he says, all of your heart. And there's nothing like that, that season in our life when we are just falling in love with somebody. We go to bed and we are up all night long thinking about them and we fall asleep thinking about them. We wake up and they're on our minds. We go through our day and they're on our minds haunting us. 
All we want to do is be with that person. If you're a guy and you're trying to get that girl, you're writing your love letters, right, phones? Yeah. And yet something happens when we get married, though, it seems. When we're on our honeymoon, we think that this is how it's always going to be. Marriage is just so easy. It's a skip in the park. And yet then we come home from the honeymoon. And we go headfirst into all of these distractions, bills, overdue pills, you know, cre you know, credit problems. And then the kids start coming. Oh my goodness. And then all of a sudden, that wife once who had, you know, had that love burning in her eyes for her husband, swooning over him. Now she's thinking, this guy doesn't even love me the way that he wants to. Because many guys, we just fall into this trap thinking, well, well, once I put a ring on that, then I can just kind of coax. I don't have to really, really try as far as my appearance goes. I don't have to write that girl love letters anymore because I've, you know, because I've already won her. But it's just the beginning. You have to continue in pursuit of that girl's heart every single day of your life. And that's what God wants. God wants us to fall in love with Him, but, but so much more, God wants us to remain insanely in love with Him. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul. This is who we are. This is our identity. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. This is what we allow in our minds, what we accept as our sources of truth. And I don't know about you, but I have fallen into the trap of filling my mind with a whole lot of garbage. With negativity and with politics and with religious argumentation. And ah, God says, love me with all of your mind. Do not set your heart on the things here below, but rather on the things above. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your strength. What is he saying here? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying, love me with every fiber of your being. Well, David, that's Old Testament. We're, we're not under the Old Testament anymore. Mark chapter 12. The scribe walks up to Jesus. Good teacher, what, what is the most important command that there is? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the most important commands there are, according to Jesus. And so as we bring this all to a close this morning, I want to ask you, and I want to challenge me in the process as well. What does it look like for you specifically to love Jesus this way? Maybe for you, what you need to do is court your Savior all over again. Maybe you might roll your eyes at this, I don't know, but as ridiculous as it sounds, court Jesus all over again. Fall in love with his word, with his church, with, with his avenue of prayer all over again. Maybe what it looks like is, if you're in love with him right now, stay in love with him. Stay connected to his word and to this church. You know, a very easy way that God offered them in the Old Testament was, here is how you can love me with all of your mind. He says, write this down 
and speak about it constantly every single day. Write it on, on your gates and on the doorposts of your house. Maybe for you what this looks like is what I, I had done about a year ago. I, I just wrote this reminder down on paper about loving God this way. And I've got a copy on my bathroom mirror. I've got a copy on, on my table right as I wake up in the morning. I've got a copy on the visor of my car. And I've got a copy in my Bible. So that this is always on my mind. And if it's always on my mind, it's always in my heart. Maybe you need to do this here this morning. Because it has done wonders in my life. I try to offer invitations in a way that's, you know, not, you know, just memorize Ken's speech me. But this is very important because if there is anybody here who is struggling in their love for God or for their church or for the lost. I think maybe this is why so many have divorced themselves from the church. Because there's a whole lot of people out there who we're just given a bunch of, of religious rules. You gotta hear the word, you gotta believe the word, you gotta repent, you gotta be baptized, you gotta go to church. Mm. All good things, mm -hmm. all necessary things. But many people were never taught first, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm -hmm. No wonder so many people fall away because they they never had that foundation of loving God first. Mm -hmm. God is not expecting you to memorize and quote every verse in Scripture. He's not expecting you to be perfect in every way or to baptize everyone in this city or to walk on water. But what He does want from us is to love Him, is to love His church, and is to love the lost just as much as we did when we jumped up out of that water, splashing from our baptism. My half hour's up. But I don't want a 95 AD love. I want a 65 AD love. Mm -hmm. Because without that love, we're just making noise in this place. And without love, we're just wasting our time. Mm -hmm. I don't want to waste my time. Mm -hmm. I don't want to waste God's time. Mm -hmm. If you have a need, please make it known as we stand and as we sing.